Hey everybody and welcome to the Darkcast. This is DCI number 44 and I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. In this episode, Brian and I got to talk to Rowan and Lee Harris, who are the co-founders of Flat Earth Games, and they just released a Mac version of their iOS game, Towncraft, which is a isometric city builder. We had a great conversation talking about the game, and we hope you enjoyed as much as we enjoy talking to them. If you want to find out more information about DarkStation, you can do that at DarkStation.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at DarkStation underscore com. If you want to subscribe to us, we are on iTunes. We're the Darkcast. While you're there, give us a review and let us know what you think of the show. And if you want to send us an email, you can do that at podcast at darkstation.com. For more information about Towncraft or Flat Earth Games, check out the links in the show notes to this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Now on with the show. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on the Darkcast today. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Uh, thanks for having us. Ah, absolutely. And and who are we talking to today? Uh, I'm Rowan Harris. Um, and I'm Lee Harris. Uh, and yes, we're brothers. Um, so it's we... not like the uh, the Tiny Tunes No Relations thing? Not, no, no, no. There is relation? Yep. Absolutely. Gotcha. Uh, we, we started the company together. Uh, and the whole company was based on the idea for this first game that's now taken us like uh, over two hours to uh, two, two hours. That was two a very, hours. very <laughs> that's, Wow. Surprise. I mean, you guys well, started this earlier that today. Years. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, it's taken us over two years to, to put all this together. Uh, it was a little larger than we'd originally anticipated by several orders of magnitude. Yeah, our, our next game is going to be a, a little bit smaller. We decided we needed to do that for sanity reasons. <laughs> <laughs> totally understandable. Sorry, you go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that's absolutely understandable. That you know you, yeah. you got to stay sane to to make games. Um, so what were your guys' backgrounds? What were you doing before uh, Flat Earth Games? Uh, well, yeah, I um, uh, I've been in games my entire career. I was lucky enough to get a job straight out of high school. Um, uh, in fact, I, I finished my last HSC exam, which is like the Australian equivalent of, it's like the 12th and final year of high school before you go on to college. Hmm. I finished my final exam on the Friday, uh, and on the Monday I started full-time work for a video game distributor down here that ended up getting bought out by Take-Two Interactive. So I've been working on uh, I've been working on you know two K games, gathering of developers, Rockstar games, and all that stuff, doing PR work for probably a good five or ten years, and then I decided to leave and become a video game journalist, which I found out was incredibly flexible. So when Ron had this idea for a game, I could quite easily start working on the game whilst being able. And I think that was the clincher. That was the deciding factor that actually made me go for it. And um, so I, I uh, have been working as a software developer, um, and I, I, the whole reason why I actually became a software developer in the first place was because I love video games and wanted to make them. Uh, and then as video games got bigger and bigger, and it stopped being a uh, you know one or two person show, uh, I sort of lost interest because the idea of moving overseas to some giant AAA studio to sit in a cubicle and work on Call of Duty 17 didn't really strike me as particularly interesting. Um, and so I instead wrote banking software, which in retrospect was really, really quite silly. But um, anyway, I've been doing that for a while, uh, just as a day job, and have been doing amateur filmmaking, sort of an outlet for, for just trying to not die of boredom. Yeah, you know what, I, I can't help but be reminded of, um, I, I went to a conference down here in Sydney about um, game design, and they had like one of those really, really big app developers that was doing all the, the in-app purchases and the free-to-play games and all that sort of stuff talking. And the woman who got up and spoke was an, a really like cutthroat, high-level investment banker <laughs> who made the pivot to uh, tweaking settings to get the most money out of people in-game in all their freemium stuff. 
and she barely had to change a thing about her personality to go from investment banker to freemium optimizer or whatever she called herself. That's true. <laughs> freemium optimizer, I like it. I like that. That, that sounds a lot less, uh, you know, diabolical. <laughs> yeah. Putting a nice sheen over it. Um, yeah, so I, I had been um, sort of doing uh, indie filmmaking stuff and doing some game criticism uh, just because, you know, discovering that you could that, uh, write about something you love very much was just fun. Um, but I wasn't doing it professionally like Lee was. That's what happens when you try to wrap the internets around the world a couple times. It's all good. Yeah, I suppose we're bouncing off satellites or weird stuff like that, or going probably, into the ocean. Yeah, yeah, probably, probably off a satellite, then down through the ocean to the bottom to some fiber optic cable back up to land somewhere. It's yeah, you know, magic. Yep. Yeah, the internet is like the, the ultimate bloatware. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but anyway, you were you were talking about how you got into games journalism. You weren't doing it uh, full time, um, but you knew that you loved it. So yeah, um, and so I've been spending a fair bit of time writing uh, articles about uh, well, just just uh, criticizing genres and and uh, sounds like being really negative. It was uh, mostly writing about things that I liked. <laughs> um, but uh, there was one particular article that I was writing because I'd gotten into an argument uh, at the pub uh, where. Uh, the discussion was about Minecraft, uh, and I was saying that it was interesting to see where it was going as a genre because it had created a whole subgenre that mm -hmm. people were doing interesting stuff with. Uh, and the other guy was um, saying, "No, they're all just clones. They're stupid clones, and that's all they'll ever be." Uh, and my argument was that, well, we also used to call them Dune clones, and now they're first-person shooters. <laughs> sure. And uh, so, well, like Dune clones that became real-time strategy. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, but that was my argument, and I was writing the, uh, this article about it. And so, to sort of prove my point, I, I started inventing a bunch of uh, random kind of things that might be sort of a spin-off of what you could do with a Minecraft-like sort of uh, crafting system. And one of the ideas that I came up with, I really quite liked. And I was thinking about it, and thought, well, it's probably not too difficult to program. I suppose I could do something like that. Uh, and just in case I, I actually decided to play with the idea, I removed it from the article. Um, and the next day rang up a, a friend of mine who I knew from doing film stuff who actually runs a game studio. Uh, and I rang him up to pitch the idea to him just to see if he thought it was worth me pursuing. Um, which was really neat because I sort of basically uh, rather drunkenly gave him a 10-minute pitch. Um, and his, rea his reaction to the 10-minute pitch wasn't what I expected, which was like, oh, that's an interesting idea or that's a crap idea. It was, yeah, that might be interesting to develop, but how do we have a lunch meeting tomorrow? <laughs> um, and that sort of uh, prompted me to uh, to call up Lee and um, explain sort of roughly what had happened. I said, so we have a launch meeting tomorrow to discuss making a video game. He's like, what video game? <laughs> yeah, so it all kind of, like, it just kind of snowballed though. We, we didn't intentionally set out to start an indie developer. Uh, we just, you know, went along to this one meeting. These guys ended up really liking the idea of blending a crafting game with a city building game and uh, I suppose for us the references and touch points were things like um, uh, yeah, ob obviously Minecraft for the um, for the really early parts where you're you know, building your basic tools and all that sort of thing but then as it got a little bit bigger in our heads I think we were thinking about stuff like Knights and Merchants if you ever played the economic side of that game in the late 90s I think it was mm. um, okay. or, like, or like the economic part of Stronghold but more about the um, the villages and farms, no no castle stuff, but yeah, it was, it was interesting because we uh, we didn't intentionally start a company or anything. We just realized after we'd started development that we could only actually launch something on uh, iTunes if we had a registered you know proprietary limited company, mm. and we're like, oh, well, can we do that? And what what does that cost? <laughs> yeah. 
and then the development, which because uh, I was a software developer, um, but not in the languages and, and frameworks that you would normally make video games in. I was writing, like I said, sort of banking software and other things that make your uh, eyes fall out in boredom. Um, <laughs> but as we started sort of co-developing this with um, this other um, game studio, I sort of kept being aware that like, ah, oh, this would go faster if I could help, if I could do more of the programming. And so I started picking up. Um, again, the, the languages that I would need, and soon it sort of began to get bigger and bigger, and it reached the point where I was then sort of suddenly the, the lead programmer, and we had, at one point, 12 people working on the game. Uh, how, which... how difficult a jump was that? I mean, it's obviously you said you were doing banking software, and so I, I you know, I, I take it they don't program in stuff like Unity, uh, but how, what, was, <laughs> is there enough commonality that, the, that it was easy enough to pick up, or, or how'd you go about doing that? Well, uh, there actually isn't, um, and the main big problem is that I was using stuff. I was primarily using Python and Perl, which are two memory-managed languages. So you don't have to worry about whether or not you're freeing up memory or you've got memory leaks or any of that sort of crap. It's all done nicely for you. Uh, whereas uh, we uh, all of Towncraft's done in C++, which means that you make one little mistake and you're hemorrhaging memory every frame, and then oh, you get God. crashes. It's horrible things. We, uh, we we found that out the hard way, actually. In the couple of months before we originally released it on iPad, it would just crash for no good reason, like um, mm. once every sometimes five minutes, every 10, every 15, and we had no idea why, so we ended up bringing in a hitman. We got, um, you guys know L.A. Noir and uh, their developer, Team Bondi, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, well, they closed down, uh, thankfully, uh, like... For us, yeah. <laughs> so, thankfully for us, um, they closed down here in Sydney not long before we came out. So we were able to get like a really killer programmer to come on who you know, needed work, and just he took one look at the code and just went, "Wow, you guys are leaking memory like a sieve." Here, let me. Fix this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, since <laughs> yeah, so since then we've gotten a lot better at it. But uh, the, only, the only thing that made it sort of vaguely possible for me is that when I first started programming, I had done like what I suppose in retrospect now is like indie sort of one-man game stuff, where I'd been making all these little tiny games with DirectX and C++. I hadn't done it in about like eight years, so mm -hmm. I was incredibly rusty. Um, having to sort of remind myself everything worked was uh, was quite a challenge. But that helps quite a bit. Otherwise, it would have been a little tricky. I mean, like if you were going to something like Unity. These days, it wouldn't be quite so much of a jump, I think, because they use C sharp or um, Mono, whatever that variant is, and so that's a little bit, little bit easier to work with than C plus um, plus. But uh, yeah, either way, it's still quite a big leap. Um, I mean, the other thing is that what becomes a bottleneck when you're talking about, you know, credit card payment systems compared to a game is just very, very different. You've got much smaller amounts of memory that you're trying to push large textures around with uh, in. Um, yeah, it's, it's quite different. Okay, cool. Uh, so, how big is the the studio now? You said you have what, twelve people. No, no, we that was the, at its largest when we had everyone working okay, on gotcha. it. Okay, gotcha. So since then, it's sort of as happens, you know, at the end of every project, as I've discovered, it's sort of one of these things where you expand to a certain number of people, and then people who aren't there at every stage of the project um, then sort of leave. So, you know, your musician will usually only be there for a little while to do certain parts of it. Same with sound people, same with uh, everything else. Yeah, so It's interesting, actually. There seems to be, like, when you're a, a really big development studio, that comes in the form, like, when you've got, like, you know, a four- or five-year development cycle on a AAA game, it seems that what you're doing is hiring people as the production phase ramps up. And then when you get into the QA phase and things are really cooling down and you're stripping back to a core team, it tends to involve people getting laid off. And a lot of the time that tends to make its way into the news with uh, people going, oh my god, there's been developers at, uh, sorry, de uh, developers getting laid off at this studio or that studio. And I, it kind of makes a lot more sense now that we've experienced it all firsthand that that's just kind of what happens. You know, you can only really have people on full time when you've got work for them. So, you know, when we're still at this really small stage, all we're doing is um, contracts with people going, hey, here's how long this game is going to take. Do you want to join us for a contract for X number of weeks or months or whatever it is? And so at that yeah, point, so it's really not like they're laying off at all. It's, you know, they come to the end of the contract, you guys have fulfilled your, your, yeah. what you're working on, and then it's, hey, you know, we'll see you again if we got something else. 
Yeah, exactly. And then we just get out the pen and paper and try and come up with uh, something else that can be fun to work on. And then once we know what we're actually going to need in terms of artists and musicians, then we'll put the word out and do it all again. Yeah. So I mean, where we're at at the moment is uh, obviously we've just released the the Mac and the iPhone version. So my primary goal at the moment is just going through any bugs that slip through the QA process um, and uh, fix those up and put them out as patches. Uh, Lee's doing you know uh, promotional stuff and uh, liaising with people, and uh, then that's sort of about half our time. The other half of the time we're working on uh, what will be our, our next game. Very cool. I like that you call it a QA process as though there was actually like a degree of... It sounds very professional when you put it that way. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> See if they say it crashes, is just uh, doesn't have the same ring to it. Bug report, this is broken. Please yeah. fix. <laughs> there is a huge difference though between getting, um, you know, random people or your good mate Bill to go and uh, have a go at it versus people who have some experience in development or QA because someone who knows what they're doing won't just go, it doesn't work. Um, they will go, there's a bug where this happens, I managed to replicate it, here are the steps, or even here's the save game, or something like that. <laughs> it's it's the, the difference between somebody who doesn't know and somebody who does know is, is going, oh, well, I found the bug, this is what it is, here you go. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, God. It's like, it broke at some point. Uh, if you, yeah, if you just play that part, yeah, it breaks. Yeah. Well, is that enough some... information? <laughs> uh, we've had some good ones. I mean, we get, I mean, most bug reports we get tend to be people who, you know, it's certainly not their fault. They don't have a clue about this type of thing. They're, they don't work in the industry. And then you're talking about an iPad game. So a lot of the bug reports will be something incredibly vague where the, the, the trick is trying to then talk to them and try to figure out exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, so we've, we've actually developed a bit of a two-step process where because Rowan's the one that has to deal with the headache of actually fixing the bugs, I'm like under screening process. So when people come in and just go, hey, this game crashed and I didn't like it, my job is to... <laughs> My job is to go, okay, so can you tell me roughly what you were doing when it crashed? Maybe a little bit of information, like what platform are you running it on and that sort of thing. <laughs> and just sort of start from there and tease it out until I can figure out you know, whether or not it's consistent, whether it's repeatable. And so, yeah, I'm like the first interviewer, and then Rowan's the one that decides whether or not they get the job as a valid bug. And uh, well, we sometimes get really good ones. Um, we, we've, a couple of times we've had uh, people email us with bug reports who are uh, programmers and other very technical people who actually give us a lot of detail straight up front and then sometimes you can get to ask them something you would never ask a normal sort of uh, uh, player who, who emails you and go like, I don't suppose you can sort of copy the save game off your iPad and email me this file and tell me what this one says or... Oh, yeah, um, no problem. Which is helpful. Sorry? Oh no no that was I was just agreeing with you. It's like oh yeah no problem let me go ahead and do that. Yeah, um, and it's, it's it's nice when that sort of thing happens. But I mean you also get different types of bugs. Like someone who finds uh, someone who's very technical. Usually we find plays games a little differently to uh, someone who is not. And it, it sort of it's interesting because it means that the type of things someone who's a, a has a fastidious personality because they're a software developer or something will they'll be nutting through some part of the game system and find these weird sort of you know low-level imbalances that they can sort of game or something. Uh, I'll tell you one thing that's actually been really cool, though, the, different, the difference between us launching the game on iPad last year and like this week's launch of the iPhone and Mac version is that the first time around, I was looking at the reviews on the App Store, and the second anybody said, oh, yeah, it crashed on me, or I experienced this glitch, the first response that I had was, <gasps> Um, there is a slight difference now. I think we're a little bit more comfortable in our own skin, knowing that you know, we've had reviews that seem to tell us that the game wasn't terrible, and uh, fans that talk to us and go, hey, we love the game. So this time around, we're actually able to go, oh, we've got another bug. That sometimes happens. Let's take a look at that. Especially when it's a very complex game like this. So let's, let's talk about this complex game. So this is Towncraft. Um, yeah. let, give us, give me the rundown. What's what's going on here? It looks. I, I've watched the video, which is hilarious. Um, and then it, I kind of looked it up on my phone while while you guys were talking too, just to kind of see what it was about. And it's it's an interesting idea. And the first thing I thought when I looked at it was I was you know, and I asked Jonathan before we started talking. I was like, is this free to play? 
And then I noticed there was a price, and I was like, no, these guys are, are actually going for it. And that, that made me very excited. Yeah, it's actually a real video game. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was... Um... That, that was something that Rowan was really insisting on from very early on was that like um, he was you know, Rowan's much more of a technophile than I am so he was sitting there playing with uh, his iPad 2 I think it was or something like that and just looking at it and going you know why can't there be games that are you know a bit more complex something a little bit meatier on here it was really starting to to bug him that everything on there was like a really simple kind of 99 cent affair or like a, a port of an existing iPhone game so we decided uh, sort of very early on that if we were ever going to do any in-app purchases, what we'd do is model it after the expansion packs of the 90s. So okay. where you would you know, pay a small amount of money and get like a wealth of content that really changes the game. But even then, we decided it wasn't right for Towncraft. So we've just been updating the game, throwing in uh, new levels. Like there's, there's more than twice the amount of content in Towncraft now as there was when it first launched last July. But, um, yeah, the game is still just five bucks up front. We just want to keep it that way. And people seem to respond really well. It's, it's amazing, actually, how much goodwill there is towards that sort of thing. I was kind of hoping that the wave of people going, wow, I get to play games for free, was starting to build into a level of um, frustration from people who were tired of getting a supposedly free game and then finding that they were being nickel and dimed or driven to frustration as often as possible to try and get money out of them. So we just thought, well, there's got to be enough people who are frustrated with this that if we do come out and just pledge not to do any of that, like we went in the whole nine yards and went, right, no no prompts to share on Facebook, no, uh, no leaderboards, no ads, no in-app purchases, just you know, a game that you can lose yourself in. That was our kind of mantra. And yeah, people seem to respond really well to that. Uh, I certainly did, and I haven't even played it yet. So, I mean, that's yeah, just the thought of, for some, and it's really sad now that it's gotten to the point where you see a game in which you build something, and I'm automatically turned off just thinking about the timers that are going to pop up. Yeah. So to have but, something kind of, you know, like like that I'm not going to be at least tempted to be like, oh, man, just let me pay for it and get it out of the way. That, you know, that I'm going to be able to continue and actually keep going on and... Yeah, I, you know, Towncraft building a town and actually making that happen. So that's that's really cool. Well, we geared the design entirely around knowing that, like, all the things that irk me about, even even if it's not really a freemium game, a lot of the time they will have these mechanics where you start something and it's going to do it in the background or it'll take 30 seconds. Uh, and so we had a um, we had this focus where um, Everything that you do has to be very pretty much instantaneous. So even if you're like harvesting crops manually or something like that, it's not tap on the field and then sit there staring as you do does it. It's like you know multiple taps of gestures and hopefully make that a you know a core part of the fun as opposed to sort of just watching things happen. Yeah, the only um, the only time there's an exception to that rule is when you're trying to cook or bake or brew something, something where it really obviously ought to take a lot of time. Uh, it was interesting though. We um like the idea of intentionally delaying what you could do in the game struck us as kind of sleazy. We don't, we don't want to do that. Um, the other option was to allow people to pay for in-game stuff. But the way that I designed the levels was such that a lot of the challenge came from only having certain different types of things available to you. So one level might have uh, you know, no iron anywhere on the map and the only way you can get it is by buying it from merchants or another one might have very, very limited crops or something like that. So if we then turned around and charged people for in-game gold coins, considering the merchants carry a different suite of stuff in every level, it actually wouldn't change the nature of the challenge. Yeah, that means you if might as well not even make a different level. That's if you could just buy what you want out of it, then yeah. the level design, that's all that's out the window. Yeah, and like, so essentially, we just didn't design a freemium game. So like, right up until the end, we were still looking at uh, possibilities around it and trying to decide uh, whether or not there was a way to allow people to pay extra money if they wanted to for something else. But we couldn't find a way that we thought was actually giving some people something worthwhile. Mm. Not without just totally neutering the game design. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, imagine if when you're playing Warcraft 2, you could just uh, purchase, uh, like, with actual dollars, 
uh, a specific resource or a set of resources, it just kind of ruined the entire way in which the, the game would be balanced, and so you wouldn't do it. Yeah, that, w- that probably would have left a lot of kids not here today. <laughs> Had that happened. Yeah, we've actually found, it's been quite surprising, a lot of the people that are picking up the game have been parents. And so we've got a lot of people coming back to us going, hey, thank you so much for not having in-app purchases and stuff, because A, my kid doesn't bug me all the time, going, you know, mom, dad, I really, really want extra credit for something or other. And as well as that, they come back to us just going, oh, yeah, it's really nice knowing that I can just leave them playing the game and they're not going to rack up a $40 debt on my credit card because they nicked it from my purse. Sure. Absolutely, especially because like um, I've got a, I've got a, a soon-to-be thirteen-year-old. My God, um, and he's he he's extremely into Minecraft. Um, he loves that kind of stuff. So knowing that, like you know, when we go pick him up uh, from his dad's and we go, uh, you know, like we have to do like a, it's like a two-hour drive or whatever. That you know, I could just hand him my phone and have it not have that not even be like it's not an option with him because he knows you know not to do that stuff. But to you know, be able to just let him play something, or, or you know, to have him hang out three DS and just have a different option. That's a, uh, that's something that's really I, I could see it from a parental point of view. That's very appreciative. Yeah, yeah. Minecraft has done something else that I still find really fascinating, which is the um, I, I know that they probably weren't the first to do it, but the idea that if you jumped on board when it was still in early alpha, you were paying a really small amount of money and all the way up until release, as it got more and more complex and intricate and more polished, um, it cost more and more, but once you had it, you had it. That was a really interesting model and something we've been talking a fair bit about, because you know, we, we do look at Towncraft and go, well, anybody who bought the game, when we first launched it last July, paid five bucks and they got a game that had three levels, easy, medium, and hard. And even though those levels were randomly generated or procedurally generated each time you played them, it's still a far cry from what we've got now, where we've got all these other challenge maps and things like that opening up. The, like, the content level now is just so much bigger. But those people jumped on board when we were still in our infancy, and I, I consider the game back then, like, I don't even want to go back and look at what version 1.0 was like, because you know, to me that is just anathema. It was probably written with bugs and unplayable, at least that's in my mind. So I just can't help but think, well, people who are just jumping on and playing Towncraft for the first time now are getting so much more and such a more polished experience for five bucks. So I can, I can totally understand the idea of yeah, where games are just going to get bigger and better after, like long after release, that games ought to reward people for having faith earlier on. Mm-hmm. We, haven't, we haven't done it yet. It's just something we find very interesting. It, it is an issue, especially. I find it especially interesting too when you tend to get into like the the stuff that's happening nowadays with like Steam early access, and I think that that model is great um, when you have something that works at first. There's so many people that think that just because it's it's early access that you're 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 providing something that doesn't have to work all the time. And I think that if you are asking people to make that investment, like you know, even in the beginning, you guys said for five bucks, you still had. Uh, procedurally generated, like, you know, three levels of difficulty, mm-hmm. there was still something meaty for people there to grab onto. And that's... Well, even if played, sorry. No, keep going. Uh, even if you had played the initial version through only once, it takes you the better part of, if you know what you're doing, uh, 90 minutes to three hours to finish one level. Um, but it's still kind of solid. I, I, I agree with early access. I think, like, firstly, the, the genre and the type of game really defines how well that might work. Like, can you imagine if, you know, Assassin's Creed V was early access? I, I just can't picture that being in any way good. Yeah, open world's a real problem with that, though. Like, if with so many interrelating systems, if one system is broken, it breaks ten other ones in just fundamental ways. Like, open world, and, and you know what, we figured this out with Towncraft as well. This was really scary, but it took until the game was probably about 80% complete before we were able to sit there after like a year and a half of development and just go, oh, okay, that's cool. This is actually fun now. <laughs> it took us such a long time because you know, the crafting mechanic needed to work properly with the building mechanic, needed to work with hiring AI and all that sort of thing. And until 
the most complex system was working alongside all of the others, it just was it was a fraction of a game where it was a bunch of disjointed games. Was there was there a point there where you ever were questioning like what the hell you were doing? Well, kind of, except that by the time I think I didn't have sort of moments of huge doubt where I was like, oh god, we're totally screwed. But there were certainly points where I'm going, hmm, we're supposed to be out in five months or four months or something, and we've got all these people working on it, and I still haven't really played a game, so it's still just kind of an idea in our collective heads. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, so I don't know. It was scary, but one of the things I think we did, which was really smart on our part was to make sure that we had part-time jobs and were able to pay the rent so mm -hmm. that no matter what happened we just thought to ourselves if this game absolutely tanks we make zero money from it then we can walk away going that was awesome we got to spend a couple of years and make a game together wasn't that fun it was worth it we were happy to like we were happy to lose any of the money that we'd invested in buying hardware in uh, you know setting up office equipment, in actually getting the company registered, we'd already considered that that sort of money a write-off, and it was just about having fun making a game. So we, we were really fixed in that mentality, and I think that helped maintain our sanity. Awesome. That sounds like a really great kind of perspective to be at in starting a, a project, especially one that kind of grew as you worked on it and, and took... Um, you know, as, as much time as, as um, Towncraft did. Yeah. So, um, but we've kind of like danced around a little bit what, what exactly Towncraft is. Uh, obviously, people have been able to play it for a while, but if somebody hasn't heard of it, what, what actually is Towncraft? What, what are the mechanics that are in play? What, what are you doing in the game? Okay, so Towncraft is a, a game which is viewed from a three-quarter perspective in a medieval setting. And the way it works is you start off with the very basics of a crafting game, so grabbing you know, some stone and some wood and crafting your first hatchet, the sort of stuff that would be familiar to anyone who's played you know, uh, Minecraft or Terraria or anything like that. Do we, do we punch uh, trees? <laughs> you get sticks off trees. You have to actually fashion a hatchet before you can chop them down. Ah, so, yeah. okay. All right. So we can just rip sticks off trees. All right. That's good. Fantastic. It's a lot more effective yeah. than punching. Yes. Yeah, and when you go and find stone, for instance, you're, you're picking up a small sharpened stone rather than actually harvesting you know, proper quantities of stone. Hmm. Um, so yeah, you start off doing little things like that, and the world is completely empty. It's just you. There's no, no wildlife, no other people, anything like that. And there's a big road that goes through the middle of it. What happens is, once you've actually done a little bit of building and you started with you know, a small shack or like a little log cabin or something basic like that, people will start to travel along the road, little peasants and things like that. And so you can interact with them, and at first all they'll do is just give you little hints about the world or give you like a little bit of flavor or say something funny or cute. But then as your town gets bigger, you get more and more options to deal with these people, and so you can start trading with merchants, you can hire people to come and work for you, so you'll get, um, you know, you can build a massive windmill and get someone to go there and be your miller and if he's actually going to work as your miller, he'll first of all need to go to your town stockpile and collect wheat. And if you're going to make that happen, you're going to have to hire a farmer who's going to have to be able to go to the wheat farm that you've already planted. So it's like all these different steps that result in you having you know, taverns and shops and houses and things like that that people will come and actually visit. And it's got like a full day-night cycle as well. So you can actually see everyone will finish work for the day and they'll all go and hang out at the pub and talk pork and stuff, you know, drinking ale and all this kind of stuff. Alright, we cut off again. Da damn yeah. internets. It's all Skype's fault. Yeah, like I said, the Skype started giving away uh, video for free now, and, you know, everything else goes downhill. Yep. Everybody uh, else must be making video calls. They ruin it for the rest of us. Anyway. Uh, so you were saying yeah. that that uh, that them going to the ta them going to the pub at night was was part of something. Yeah. So, yeah, the idea is that you would eventually have a fully functional, self-sustaining little town that actually had inhabitants, workers. People would come and visit. You'd get 
you know, noble citizens and high-born types coming and spending heaps of money and talking down to everyone. And along the way, there was also quests and things that you got from people. And the more quests you completed, the more varied and intricate the tasks would get. So we wanted it to be like partially a sandbox and partially a medieval city builder. But on a small, intimate scale, so you actually have, you know the names of the people in your town as opposed to them all being nondescript entities like in SimCity or whatever. Mm -hmm. So can you get to a point where you've set things up so well that it is, it, it kind it works on its own and you're not, you're no longer like delivering wheat or going to chop down more wood or you can worry about other things because your people are doing what they're supposed to do and they're, they're making that themselves? We're back. And we're back. back. Yay. Alright, All right, let's try this once more with feeling. Uh, <laughs> I'm really sorry about this, guys. It, uh, we've right. actually had a, a pretty good run with Skype over the last month or two. Uh, so I think it's just getting back at us. Uh, for all of those good interviews and and you know in in one sitting, uh, but that's the beauty of you know post production and being able to cut out all the. Okay, so we don't have to apologize to your listeners for all the nope. stuff. Nope, nope, nope. We're sorry, we live on an island in the Pacific. <laughs> As I said, internet going up into the the clouds, satellites going down into the ocean. It's, it's crazy. It takes way too long for the internet to get over to to where you are from where we are. Anyway, yeah, the, there was actually a, an almost Australia-wide, not an internet outage because it just wraps around it, but internet just completely slowed down for the better part of a week, and it turned out it was because a uh, fishing boat off Indonesia had lowered its anchor and locked off oh. one of the primary uh, uh, yeah, cables, arteries. <laughs> which was laid on the ocean floor. <laughs> The internet arteries. That's, we thought uh, we had it bad with like you know squirrels and stuff. Just yeah. Cable, but man, just having a fishing boat just cut it all off for everybody. Yeah, it's twenty-five oh. million people going. Hey, my porn got slow. <laughs> and that's oh. what everyone would complain about, indeed. Um, <laughs> but back to the game. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the question the question you asked was, um, can you get the town to the point where you uh, don't have to do anything at all? Where the town where, where I could be a really a real mayor and kick back with my my feet up and go look at what I have done. Um, we cut slightly short of that very deliberately. Um, in terms of you, almost everything you can hire someone to do, but there are certain key tasks um, that you can't. So you can have farm, you, you can have most of the the, the laborious stuff uh, automated, um, but you will still have to craft things yourself and all that sort of thing. But you can do it. Um, you end up sort of finding, like on the larger towns, I usually find that uh, what I'm doing is occasionally just checking and going, all right, so what have I got? I might stock up on these things for the the store or whatever, and I'll do that and then just walk about and see what's going on. Um, so it's just like the, the 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 feel of the game shifts quite significantly. Uh, toward the end. Yeah, it, it's interesting actually. That's, there was a couple of things. First of all, we designed it to be something of a wolf in sheep's clothing. We wanted this to be like a meaty complex game that, uh, and I hesitate to use you know, hardcore and casual flippantly, but I'm going to because I don't have any better shorthand. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> hardcore, like, we, we wanted a hardcore gamer to be able to sit down, play the game, and get as much out of it as we would have when we were playing stuff like Stronghold and Knights and Merchants back in the day. And it was just because it's um, just because it appears to be something of a casual game doesn't mean it actually needs to be uh, designed to be kind of you know uh, tedious or slow or designed to patronize the player and assume they know nothing. So we very much throw people in the deep end. It's all about trying to figure stuff out for yourself. Um, but the other thing was, there's an article that I read, um, probably like way near the beginning, and it was talking about Farmville, and it was noting that one of the rewards that you got in Farmville was being given like a much bigger plow or something like that. And what it was actually doing was allowing you to harvest way more of something at the same time to the extent that it was feeling automated. And the person writing the piece just kind of went, hold on, so essentially what you're doing is admitting that your game is actually quite dull. 
and my reward for doing well is that I now have to play less of your game than I did previously. <laughs> You're giving me essentially shortcuts and cheats as a reward. How much confidence can you really have in your gameplay mechanic if that's what you're giving me? And that, I suppose I kind of took that to heart. So, um, yeah, when it, when it comes to the end of it, you can, you can have all the thriving buildings, you can have people doing all your fishing, your chopping down of wood, your farming, your mining, your milling, shopkeeping, tavern keeping, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, the one thing that you're still going to have to do for yourself is the crafting. So when you're deciding what your tavern is going to be selling, you can be playing around with some different ingredients of crops to try and create new types of booze to sell. You know, oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, so you, you'll always be tinkering. There's always going to be something for the player to do. Uh, I suppose we would have needed to create a whole other level of strategy if we were going to have it be an effective mare simulator. Not that I have a problem with that, though. I'm a huge Tropico fan. <laughs> And it changes a bit per map too, like as in the first three maps are just sort of variations on a theme, but then with each challenge map we've actually got new art assets and given a whole new sort of feel to it. And the most different one that we came up with is, um, it was actually one of my original ideas for another game, but I ended up realizing it's probably a little too simple to do like as a standalone game, but as a single level within Towncraft, if we just modified the mechanics a bit, it'd be fun. So we did a desert island map, because I love the idea of you know something where you wash up on a desert island and have to survive. And Towncraft doesn't have any survival aspects. You don't starve or anything like that. But you we don't starve, get it? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Good call. But uh, we, we ended up just changing the mechanics around. So, I mean, there's things like, for instance, uh, the difference between going into a forest where any tree you can grab sticks off and then you can chop it down to get larger ones uh, becomes very different when you're on this little island with a very limited amount of palm trees because palm trees don't have any sticks on you. Off. So you have to go and get bushes for that, and then you have to actually chop down the palm trees. And then you get coconuts, and so, for instance, you can make coconut wine in the desert island, but you can't get it, do it anywhere else. It's so palm wine. Palm wine, palm sorry. Wine. But it's made from coconuts. But it's made from coconuts, yes. Good, good, good choice. There's one, actually, there's one really interesting thing about the game. Um, so we didn't put in survival mechanics, so there's no way to die in the game. But what ends up happening is that um, your employees... Oh, your, your workers, if they don't get paid at dawn every day, they will just up and leave your town. And if one of your workers leaves your town, you're going to find that all of a sudden part of your chain is broken. And until you get some more money uh, to hire a new worker, you might find that your supply of hops is cut off so you can no longer get ale or mead to give to the tavern. So your tavern's not making money, which is only going to make the situation worse. So what ended up happening was the risk versus reward that people have isn't based on the game kind of arbitrarily going, you have to do something within this time limit or else, but it's instead the player getting a bit overambitious. So they'll get money for the first time and go, hey, this is sweet, now I can buy this, uh, I can get this worker to come over and do this thing that I didn't want to do. And the worker will start going and doing that, and then they will find that if, if they just get a little bit overzealous and hire one too many people, it's all going to come crashing down around them and their crops are going to die and... So the town can just have its economy implode, but it can't happen without the player knowing exactly what they've done wrong because they chose it. <laughs> nice. You did this. <laughs> it's your fault. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, okay. Man. So, so they, they, okay, no, you oh, go, John. Go. Okay, I was just going to say, so the, the iOS version came out last fall, and the, the macOS version was the one that was just released. Uh, what kind of changes have you guys made to the uh, the Mac version that I assume are, are being retroactively implemented in the iOS version? It was actually iPad first. iPad. And what we released okay. was the iPods. The, the app is now a universal app, so if you had an oh, iPad, you okay. now have an iPhone as well. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, this is we're, 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 this one we've labeled Towncraft 2.0 because we've just made so many changes in this version and over the course of time. There's a lot of stuff. And yeah, um, basically everything we've retrofitted back in. Nice. Um, the, the only differences are in terms of obviously the interface is different because touch is very different to mouse and keyboard. So there are different ways of trading with merchants uh, in the desktop one because it's a desktop build and you've got a mouse. Yeah. Um, like the mechanic of just like having your inventory on the left and just dragging... Um, dragging something from your inventory into the game world one at a time to build your farm feels really satisfying on an iPad. 
But if you were asked to manually click and drag for every single tile when planting a turnip farm using a mouse, it would just make people tear their hair out entirely. So <laughs> yeah, we had to change that sort of thing. But also stuff like if you click and hold on something, it will delete it on iPad. Whereas you know we've got a mouse with a right click menu yeah. on the. So yeah, obvious interface differences are, are pretty much the only difference now between the Mac and the iPhone versions. Uh, iOS version. So if you buy it on your iPhone 4, content-wise, you're still getting the same, uh, yeah, the same level of everything. It's just a much more sort of streamlined and refined experience on desktop with the, uh, with the blessing of a mouse and a keyboard. Hmm. Awesome. When you guys talk about the the challenge maps that you brought up, is this something like uh, like Sims the you know kind of the old SimCity challenges where you're given like a set of objectives based off of like, you know, you have a town that is falling apart, you need to fix it. Um, you have aliens. Are there aliens? Uh, no, but there are lots of the way the universe references to all sorts of different things. Yeah, Fantastic. Okay. some offhand reference to reticulating splines. Um, the the challenge maps vary quite a bit. Uh, the the first ones that we did were basically time, so you get 12 in-game days to get the best town you can. But the challenge comes from not only having a, a, a timed aspect to it, which you quite free to ignore. I mean, you can keep playing past the endpoint, so if you want to just use the challenge maps to muck around, you're quite welcome to. Um, but they each have different unique sort of patterns to them. So for instance, um, one of them might be that there is no, no merchants go past on this map, so you can't use the traditional method of make a few things yourself, sell it to the merchant to get your first chunk of money to hire someone to uh, eventually open up a, a tavern or something. Um, so you've actually got to do quests for people who walk by who might want a specific subset of things. And, or it could be that, say, this challenge map doesn't, you know, this is a, a horrible swamp and it doesn't actually have naturally uh, any of a particular type of resource or, or uh, crop. And so in order to get it, you have to complete some quests or trade it off merchants. And then once you've got it, you can then, you know, plot out a little farm in what sort of space you've got, grow it up, and then sort of replant it to build up your fields that way. Yeah, and we had a um, we had a narrative running through the core easy, medium, and hard stages, um, which sort of ties together. We got yeah, we came up with a couple of characters. There was like an incredibly narcissistic, permanently topless king called King Oligarchy, who um, uh, was you know obsessed by his own reflection and constantly asking you for things that would make him look good. And then we had this like incredibly warmongering queen called Queen Omnibus. And so we had like a story where those two were vying for control. You were caught in the middle and they were constantly asking you for things. Um, but we also just had a bunch of quests that uh, weren't, didn't have to be done in a particular order or anything like that, and just sort of popped up as a bit of extra flavor. So yeah, you, you're constantly finding when you're near the road that you're tapping on a peasant going, wow, that's low, or a merchant or whatever, and going, let's see what these people are asking me for. You can take a look and go, oh, I think I might be able to figure out how to make that. Or yes, I already know how to make that. I just need to get some more resources and that's totally done. And um, those kind of quests, uh, the, like new ones of those get added with each challenge map as well. So it's ended up being that there's roughly like twice the number of quests now to what there was originally. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah so the challenge maps are just, each time it's like, it's us going, right, how can we find a way to mix things up to add a, a level of challenge for the player? It was actually, it was a Gama Sutra article that made me realize that one of the biggest things we could or should be doing to add challenge was uh, terrain deformation. So that's why the very first challenge map is a swamp where it's primarily water just covered in reeds and with very like intricate and spindly little sort of you know, islands and archipelago type structure is because that is a hugely, a hugely different challenge to you just having to cut down some trees to make space for your new farm. And yeah, it was an article about SimCity that was talking about how the big joy of SimCity was looking at whatever body of water was in the map you were playing on and going, right, how am I going to position this so my residential and my commercial and my industrial is all, you know, in the best possible way, given that there's this big mess of water going through it. Nice. Um, so, I don't really have any more questions. Brian, do you? You ready for the no, end game? No, you want to go end game? Let's, let's yeah. do it. All right.
All right, uh, gentlemen, we like to, to end our interviews, to cap them off with a kind of inside the actor's studio questionnaire at the end. Um, it's a bit more personally focused. Um, so, you know, uh, they, it does get harder as it goes along insofar as uh, the questions kind of get more more dark and personal, but not <laughs> crazy. So, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, but, but, uh, but first question, um, seeing as you guys have, have played video games like all your lives, um, who is your favorite video game protagonist? Who's your favorite good guy or anti-hero? I'm going with Gabriel Knight. Hmm. Oh, that's a good reach one. back. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. I'm tempted to say Guybrush Threepwood. <laughs> mm. Don't be tempted. Say it. Also good. Yes. <laughs> All right. I'll say Bend. Guybrush Threepwood. Actually, you know what? I should say that because at the end of the credits in Towncraft, a little message pops up that says, "Now turn off your computer and go to sleep, just like Monkey Island did." <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I'm um, flipping the side of that coin. Um, who is your favorite antagonist? Hmm. Uh, I, there aren't many good antagonists in uh, video games. There are, there are. There. I, I, I know that this one's way more contemporary and less 90s, so I don't want to lose my 90s hardcore cred by saying this, but <laughs> I'm going to have to say that Andrew Ryan hmm. from Bioshock, like, he just still, like, he still just kind of touched me, not only because Ayn Rand is a fascinating yeah, antagonist of life in general, <laughs> but, I mean, just... I'm, I'm going to avoid spoilers for anyone that has managed to avoid Bioshock for seven years, but the, uh, the last scene in the game that involves Andrew Ryan was one of those just, like, blatantly shocking turning points for me where I just had no idea what to do with myself. And a lot of that was based off the strength of his character and his, you know, his idea, his ideology. It was beautifully done. Good choice. And that was a hell of a turn too. I'm I'm sort of uh, uh, torn between two, and one's not really an antagonist, but I'm currently replaying uh, GTA V, and Trevor is effectively an antagonist, except you yeah. happened to him. <laughs> sure. I can buy that, that line of reasoning. These things that you, don't, you just sort of sit there going like, that was hilarious, but I feel awful. <laughs> and then you get these questions, and it's sort of, I think it's a, a sort of a work of genius to basically create the protagonist and the antagonist all being playable characters, and so the choices, of, the easy choice of I'm just going to defeat the bad guy at the end is not a simple choice. Mm -hmm. so that, that's, that's probably what I would have to go with. Sure. I can roll with that. Uh, question number three. Um, what's your least favorite um, kind of video game trope um, that, that's happening today that you'd like to see go away? Uh, that one's easy. Any situation where bad guys arbitrarily spawn in a position that breaks immersion of the world. Mm. Um, I mean, sometimes they try to actually make it work in the context of the game. So Doom 3, the things like come out of a dimensional the monster closet. But sometimes they don't even bother us. Just if you can't see an area, it's a valid spawn point for bad guys and just sort of loses me. I mean, even another game that is otherwise brilliant, like Far Cry 2, can just totally lose me because I walked accidentally two feet further in this direction and magically all the guys that were at this outpost spawned again and it just mm. lost me. Yeah, I, I actually, based off the reputation that Far Cry 2 had, I got commissioned to write um, a fairly in-depth article about the game because I pitched the idea of me and a video game professor from one of the local universities sitting down and playing Far Cry 2 together and sort of discussing as first-time players how we felt about the way that it conveyed a sense of openness and freedom to us. And what we ended up finding was that we just didn't buy that sense of openness and freedom, and it was largely because of what Rowan's saying about you know, enemies just respawning in a way that just pulled mm. us out and reminded us that not everything had a permanent effect in a game that felt like it should. Yeah, I mean, most games do this to some degree if, they have, if they're that genre of game. But I mean, for instance, going back to GTA V, just because I'm playing it at the moment, when they want to introduce, introduce new bad guys, they all rock up in SUVs and pull out. <laughs> da, 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 da. And it works perfectly in the context of the game, and you get the advantage where if you're really on the ball, you can just lob a grenade in the direction of the SUVs and off you go. And mm -hmm. I suppose uh, my, my biggest pet peeve at the moment, I, 
yeah, part of me wants to save, you know, freemium nickel and diming and stuff, but that's just being self-serving. So what I'll actually say is excessive hand-holding and encouragement from games. Like, I, I think it was um, Skate 2 that I was playing, the, the one that had Jason Lee as a character called The Coach, and who, oddly enough, was your skating coach. It was an ingenious name. And it... Uh, <laughs> I just, I was getting bombarded by the game just telling me how awesome I was all the time. <laughs> I just sat there going, I, you know, guys, I have self-esteem. I don't, I don't need you to sit here telling me how brilliant and amazing I am for doing exactly what you just told me. Like, I, cool job tapping X, bro. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> but that, that's mine at the moment is when a game is just like, getting you to go through its tutorial through a really hand-holding way and is desperately worried that you're going to get bored with it and feels the need to just reinforce how amazing you are all the time. And if you want the complete inverse of that being used perfectly, I think it was the tutorial for was one of the Spider-Man games some years ago that had um, a cameo of um, uh, Bruce, Campbell Bruce Campbell voicing yeah. the tutorial. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And he got bored and said, well, you just finished, I'm having a sandwich. And just yeah. started eating the sandwich loudly <laughs> while you're finishing the tutorial. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm, of course, really biased, but having the excessive praise be heaped upon you in Manhunt, now that, that you get behind. <laughs> that just, you know, sort of disturbing sexual sort of lascivious Brian Cox talking directly into your ear. Now that, that was brilliant, that was creepy. So creepy encouragement, okay. Actual <laughs> fake encouragement to keep you going, you know, you, you need it to be real. Yeah. Mm. And, and fit I the just situation. wasn't feeling it from Jason Lee. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not his fault. Alright, next question. Um, what is your favorite city slash civilization builder? Um, I think the, there's two ways. It, it sort of depends on my mood. Um, if I want to do nothing but think strategically, Civilization Five is a shockingly perfectly balanced civilization builder. Uh, they streamlined it from all the previous ones. I was really quite sort of dubious about it, but the fact that they cut back so much and made it so elegant uh, was fantastic. But the thing is, it's very stand backish, so I don't usually feel too much of a sense of personal accomplishment about the things that I've done because I'll be thinking it's fantastic that I made these tactical choices and the position of that city works great and my choice to build uh, walls in this one and then to do the road this way was great, but it's not very personal. So it would. Um, Sometimes when I want something a lot more, uh, I don't know, that just feels a lot more like I'm doing real tangible things that have effects, um, st I still occasionally go back to play Knights and Merchants, um, just from, what was that? 99, 98 or something? Yeah, um, thereabouts. Because that, that one's nowhere near as balanced a game. It, there's, no way, there's no level on which it's uh, as good, except that they've got this great way of like seeing, for instance, your workers finish and go and line up at the inn uh, to go and have the sausages and things that you've produced. And meanwhile, you're trying to produce a third type of food or whatever, and you see them actually... Um, you see every little detail of the... You see the sausages hanging up on the wall and the, the, the bread sitting there, and then when barrels of wine get rolled in, etc. So all the little details just sort of... Yeah, like, give me a sense of personal satisfaction of having built that 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 uh, that well, I suppose town in this case, not really a, a civilization, but yeah, it's we're not uh, we're not kidding when we say that game was a big influence on this one. I think that and like some of the DIY stuff in the early Ultima games was uh, another big one. Mm -hmm. um, just so that I'm not saying Civilization Five, although I was <laughs> going to say Civilization Five, um, I'll say the Tropico series. Okay. Reason being, it's sardonic, it's really quite funny, it's managing to set itself in a really deeply tense political environment and be self-aware about it and still be quite, you know, quite amusing. But I think in particular, and this is something the later Tropico games have gotten, uh, have gotten kind of wrong, there was, a, there was a big article about Tropico that I reluctantly agreed with because I'm still busy loving Tropico 4. Um, is that the, the early game, Tropico 1, was so unbearably difficult 
it was so nightmarishly hard to actually get your little version of Cuba to run properly without being massively indebted to the entire Western world that it made this incredible political statement about what it's like to live under the thumb of the US or of Russia or like how difficult it must be for one of these tiny little nations that's coveted by both uh, the USSR and the US during the Cold War. It was actually a really, it was almost an educational game about how how screwed up those economies must be. But whenever games get bigger, they have a tendency to get a little bit easier and a little bit more user-friendly. And I feel like Tropico games lately have made it just far too easy to get a thriving economy and they've lost that bite and that edge that they had originally. Okay. De definitely. Alright, next question. Um, if you had the option to do any other profession, no restrictions, what would you like to try? Uh, I would just make, make filmmaking a profession, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because I have a very short attention span. And uh, so while I would love to be a marine biologist or a, a spy or something like that, analyzing uh, intelligence data, I just don't have the attention span for that sort of thing, which means that anything like video games or film where I get to do, become intensely involved with one bit of subject matter or one particular challenge for a relatively short period and then move on is, uh, well, pleasant. I think um, I'd probably go with being a writer. I think that that was what I always wanted to be growing up because the idea of being a video game designer, it didn't really seem like a realistic proposition because the people that made games were names in a credit screen that were probably working in massive skyscrapers in big cities in America that had nothing to do with us. So, yeah, I, I just really loved words and writing, wrote a lot when I was in high school. I'd probably go and do that. In fact, one of the games that we're working on at the moment that's still like quite a ways down the track, we've probably already got like you know tens of thousands of words written just in backstory alone that mm -hmm. has nothing with the actual plot of what's going to happen in the game. And a lot of that I feel is potentially unnecessary, but I couldn't care less because I just love writing it. Awesome. That's awesome. That's really awesome. All right. Uh, final question. This is a biggie. Um, at the end of our lives, when we come to the gates of the Mushroom Kingdom, and Toad is there with the Book of Our Deeds, um, what would you like him to say to you? Um, I suppose I would like him to say something along the lines of, now you can eat me, I am actually a hallucinogen. <laughs> Because I get the impression that that would be a whole lot of fun. He he looks like he's having fun all the time. Oh, that is fantastic. That might be the best answer ever. Uh, I'm in shock. I, wow, Don't. yeah. <laughs> but still... I've never power. even thought about that. <laughs> wow. nibble off your head. Oh, that's perfect. Okay. Oh. Wow. My, mind blown! Like I'm, I look at Mario in a completely different way now. That's amazing. Uh, I, I suppose I would, I would hope for two questions in this order. The first one being, oh, you made insert name of game here. I've been meaning to ask a question about that. When this happens and that happens, did you mean etc.? Just anything detailed like that. Uh, and the second <laughs> one being, did you know you can just put a coin in there and respawn? <laughs> Nice. That's, I like it. Yep. That's I like it. it. Oh. Congratulations. You win. I'm still in shock over Toad. That, oh. Right? Yeah. That's that's pretty... Man, this, this is supposed to wreck you guys. It is not supposed to wreck me. Oh, my God. I'm broken and alone over here in my chair. But that's it. You did it. That's... Oh, what an ending. Thank you. Was... What an ending, folks. Yep. Oh, my God. We're eating Toad. <laughs> Knife and fork. <laughs> well, you gotta stop him first. I just uh, but... at you the whole time. <laughs> oh, that's disturbing. <laughs> All right, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight and talking about right. Towncraft. Uh, had a really great time. If you could just send us out uh, by letting our listeners know where they can go to find out more information about Towncraft. 
Yeah, well, you can get uh, you can get to us on the usual social media sites, or you can check out our development blog, which is www.flatearthgames.com.au, um, because you know we really appreciate the progressive and forward-thinking nature of such amazing institutions as the Flat Earth Society. So. <laughs> Either that or it's because our game was going to be 2D, but, you know, I'll leave that to your imagination. Flatearthgames.com.au And uh, Towncraft is just at towncraftgame.com. Yep, and it's out on Mac, iOS, and Mac and iOS. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Towncraft in the little search, it comes right up. I checked. <laughs> Well, thank you once again, and uh, I wish you guys the the best of luck uh, and all of the (coughs) continued support that I'm sure you'll have with Towncraft and in your future games. And uh, have a good day. Thanks very much. Thank you. See ya.